We are in uh, the course of a, an expository study through the book of Romans, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, passage by passage. We've been doing this now for, this is our 14th lesson, our 14th week, and we are at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. And we've just concluded Romans 2 last Sunday, and today's p- passage, this, this little Uh, segment of scripture that we're going to look at today these eight verses represent a momentary digression from the main thrust of this part of the letter there are some potential objections on the part of the jewish antagonist that paul has envisioned and has been responding to throughout uh, chapter two there are some potential objections that need to be responded to in depth, they really need a deeper answer, and that deeper answer will be given later in the letter. But uh, these objections relate to the case that Paul has just made in Romans chapter two. And as the antagonist uh, hears what Paul has to say, he might see Paul's approach to the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans one and two as a denial of the privileged position of the Jews as God's chosen people because Paul has essentially placed the Jew and the Gentile on level ground. We've seen the last few weeks over and over again. He said it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if a Gentile. It matters what you do. It matters what you do with the truth of God that's been given to you. The Jew will be held accountable not just to the fact that he is the seed of Abraham but that he had the law. And if he didn't obey the law and if he didn't fulfill the law, then he's going to be held accountable to the law. Likewise, the Gentile is held accountable to the law of God that was written in his heart. And so he's made the point that the Jew and the Gentile are on level ground. And so certain objections have to be forming in the head of the Jewish listener that's listening to this letter concerning the promises of God that were made to the patriarchs of old concerning the Jews. And so those objections need to be answered. They will be answered in depth later in the letter as the letter unfolds. But if Paul answered them in depth here, you know, he's spent chapter 2 answering certain objections, but if he answered them in depth here, it would distract from the logical progression of the letter. So instead, he takes these first eight verses of chapter 3, and he acknowledges these objections, and he gives a brief answer to them. And he does it in order to entice the Jewish listener to continue to listen to his argument as it unfolds, to continue to hear what he has to say, and and by so doing, he buys the time to go ahead and and develop this logical argument he's making, and he will address all four of these points later in the book of Romans. So that's what we have in the first eight verses of chapter 3, these four objections that we're going to hit really shortly and really briefly and then move on and then in chapter 6 and 8 and 9 and 10 Paul's going to pick these back up and he's going to deal with them later on in the book of Romans. The text this morning is Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bible want to look at it or read on the screen behind me it says What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged." 
But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now that's a kind of a complex passage. We're going to go through it, and I'm going to explain it. And, and we're going to look at what Paul is saying here. It starts with, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? The, the passage, all eight verses, contain four closely related objections that kind of build one upon the other to the final objection. The first of those is presented in verse 1. What advantage does the Jew have? What good is it then to be a Jew? If the Jew and the Gentile stand on level ground, if, it, if it's possible for a circumcised Jew to fall short of God's approval because he does not obey God's law, and if it's possible for an uncircumcised Gentile, if he obeys the law of God that was written in his heart, to receive the approval of God, then, then what benefit is there of being a Jew? And that, that objection is reasonable. What is the value then of circumcision? What is the value then of the covenant that God made with Abraham? This doctrine of Paul, this doctrine that he's put forth in chapter 2 seems to undermine the significance of the Jews. But it was God that designated Israel as a chosen nation. It was God that commanded for the Jews to be circumcised. It was God that set them apart, that made them his chosen people. So what advantage then is there of being a Jew? What profit is there in being circumcised? That's the question that's asked. Verse 2 says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So after all the teaching of chapter 2, you might expect Paul to answer the question of chapter 1 by saying there is no value. You're on the same plane. You're on the same level footing, but that's not what he says. Matter of fact, what he says might even surprise you if you just read chapter 2 and thought that you had formed your opinion of what Paul thinks of the Jews. Instead of saying there's no value in being a Jew, Paul replies that the Jew had many advantages in every way. If the Jew had no advantage, if, the, if there was nothing special about being the child of Abraham, about being the descendant of Abraham, about being a part of the covenant promise of God, then either the Old Testament could not be relied upon or God did not keep his promises. So Paul has just rejected the notion in, in chapter 2 that the Jew can expect favored treatment from God because he is the seed of Abraham, because of his race, no matter how he lives, that he can live any way he wants to live and he's going to be blessed by God, by God because he's a Jew. Paul just has just put that to rest. He's just rejected that notion. But he never went to the extreme of saying that it didn't matter to be a Jew. He never went to the extreme of saying that there was no benefit in being a Jew. The, the arrogant Jew that he's addressing has some misconceptions about what it means to be a Jew, and Paul has rejected those misconceptions. The arrogant Jew that he's talking to believes that because of his spiritual heritage, he can do anything he wants to do. 
And he's not going to be judged because he's the people of God unto whom was given the law of God, and he's above everybody else. Paul has rejected that notion, but he has not rejected the idea that there was something special about being a Jew. And now he speaks to the very real advantage that God has given to his chosen people. He says chiefly. That word chiefly indicates that Paul may be about to make a list of the advantages that the Jews had. That that word chiefly may even be better translated as first, as in first in a list. But Paul never gets any further than the first item on the list. Now later on in the book, later on in this letter, he's going to kind of complete this list or add to this list as we go. But But first, Paul says... God entrusted the Jews with his oracles. God entrusted the Jews with his word. The the Jews, the children of Abraham, had the supreme treasure of God's word. They had an advantage that will never be taken away from them. God first gave his word of promise to them. And so by circumcision, Israel became the people of the word of God. They became the people of the law of God, the people of Promise. They became a people whose greatest treasure was the word of God that had been delivered to them. Now the word oracles means divine word or divine utterances. And in the context that's used, it clearly refers to all of the Old Testament, all of the scripture that they had, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the law, the Levitical law. It refers to the whole of Scripture. What Paul does here is he calls the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the the Word of God that the, the Israelites had, he calls it the oracles of God. What he's doing is emphasizing the exalted nature of scripture, the the inspiration of scripture. This is this this book that we hold so dear. This isn't just a collection of fables. This isn't just a, a collection of stories. This is the word of God. This is the inspired God breathed word. This is the oracle of God. This is the word that God has given. These aren't just good verses or good words that some man came up and wrote down in black and white. This is the written word of God. This is his oracle. Amen. This is his word. And and that inspiration then, by, by making one blanket statement about it, Paul extends that inspiration to the whole of Scripture. All of it is the word of God. Every word of it is the oracle of God. That's what they were entrusted with, a very precious thing. It was the very word of God. So it matters what the Bible says. It matters what Scripture says. This isn't just a, a group of good ideas that you can live your life by. This isn't something that you can go through and, and pick out what you like and discard what you don't like. It matters what the Word of God says. It matters what's written in the Bible because they are the oracles of God. There's a divine significance to that. This is the Word of God, all of it. Every bit of it. So Paul is pointing out that the Jews were the trustees. They were the guardians of these oracles of God throughout the Old Testament. They were given the word of God. And to have the revelation of God's word, to have the revelation of God's will and purpose committed to them was a high honor. It was a a distinguishing thing. And it was an honor that carried great responsibility because they had the word of God. They were accountable to the word of God. 
That's the point that was made in chapter 2. Not that it didn't matter that you were a Jew, but that it mattered that you received the very most precious thing that God ever gave to humanity, the Word of God. And that in having received it, they were unfaithful to it. And having received it, they did not give due respect to the Word of God. And so the problem was not that they were Jews. The problem was that they had received the word of God and they had failed to value that word. They had the law. The law made them superior, they thought, to everybody else. But in that arrogance, they themselves did not practice the law that God had given them. The point in chapter 2 was not that there was no advantage in being a, a Jew or no advantage in having the law. The point was that that God placed a lot of trust, a lot of confidence in the Jews. He gave them the very oracle of law of, of God. But by ignoring that, by not valuing that, they changed their advantage into a disadvantage. They became accountable to that very law that they rejected or that they ignored. So verse 3 says... For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So the second objection is, does Jewish unbelief invalidate God's faithfulness? If God's promise hinged on the Jews, if God was faithful to Abraham, then if, if the Jews can be lost out of that covenant, if they can fail God and be rejected by God, does that not undermine God's faithfulness? Now, the first thing before we answer that, before we get into that, what I want you to note right off the bat is the link that shows up again between belief and obedience. The Jews have not obeyed the word. That's their, their fault. That's their flaw. They've not obeyed the law. They've not obeyed the oracle of God that was given to them. But if you read the text, Paul equates that lack of obedience with a lack of faith. He says, if they believed, they would have obeyed. But since they haven't obeyed, it's obvious that they did not believe. For what if some did not believe? Not if they didn't obey, but they didn't believe. Because they're, they're, the, the link between faith and obedience is unbreakable. It's inseparable. If you believe, you obey. And if you don't obey, then you don't believe. And that's the point that Paul has made, that by their disobedience, they've demonstrated their disbelief. Now the question, do the Jews, by their unbelief, erase the advantage of possessing the oracles of God? Do they, do they, does the faithfulness of God at stake if the Jews are lost because of their unbelief? If some Jews do not believe God, if they don't give credence to the oracles of God, if they are rejected by God because they don't respect the law that was given to them, then wouldn't that invalidate all the promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the patriarchs of old? Doesn't that invalidate somehow uh, the faithfulness of God to the things that he spoke to those men when he said, I will preserve your seed and I'm going to bless it, amen, and I'm going to multiply it and I'm going to give it my promises? If somehow the, the Jewish antagonist is making the argument, somehow 
the unfaithfulness of Jew can uh, of the Jewish people can do away with the the faithfulness of God, then doesn't that undermine the very promises of God? If the promises of God are not forever settled in heaven, doesn't that make God unfaithful? The point here is to force Paul to one of two conclusions. Either, first of all, he's wrong, and the Jews have not disbelieved, even though they've disobeyed. Or secondly, the teachings of Romans chapter 2 do in fact invalidate the uniqueness of the Jews as a people of God, which would in the mind of the Jewish antagonist make God unfaithful. He's trying to push Paul into a corner where either what he said about the Jews isn't true or God is unfaithful. Verse 4, Paul answers, God forbid... Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. And here he quotes from a psalm, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So Paul answered the objection with his favorite expression of emphatic denial. You'll see it over and over again. God forbid. Now the interesting thing to note about that is the Greek doesn't contain the word God. It would probably be better translated as absolutely not or certainly not. But he says, God forbid, is the way the King James Version translates it. And what Paul is saying here is it's an emphatic answer. Man's unbelief cannot destroy God's faithfulness. If people's actions could prevent God from carrying out his promises, then God would not be faithful. But then he wouldn't be God either. If something we could do could keep God from carrying out his will, then, then he wouldn't be God at all in the first place. God is faithful even, Paul says, if that means that every man that lives is a liar. God's faithful if everyone on the face of this planet is a liar. God's promises, Paul says, will be fulfilled. What God said he's going to do, he's going to do. What God promised to Abraham is going to come to pass even if every single Jew that ever lives or breathes is unfaithful to God. Even if every Jew rejects God and is by that rejection condemned to hell, still God will be faithful and his covenant will be fulfilled. God's covenant purpose for Israel Listen, this is the key to chapter 2. God's covenant purpose for Israel did not guarantee the salvation of every individual Jew. That wasn't the covenant that God made with Abraham. The basic covenant promise was not that every individual Jew would be saved, but the basic covenant promise was to Israel as a nation. The promise was not that every Jew would be saved, but by virtue of the fact that that God chose the nation of Israel to give his law to and put his blessing on, that he would bring the Messiah through that nation, that Christ would come through the Jews. It was not that just because you were the descendant of Abraham, just because you had the blood of Abraham, you were saved. We know that's not the case. There's a difference between Isaac and Esau, or Jacob and Esau. 
There's a difference between the various lineages of Abraham that split off. There was only one blessed seed. There was only one chosen. And the, the lineage of Abraham was not the lineage uh, of blood, but it was the lineage of faith. It was a lineage of those who embraced the law of God, the word of God, and the promises of God and walked in them. And so Paul's making the point that God's going to be faithful to his promise, and his promise was not that just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham means you're saved. You can come out of Ishmael's line and do that. That wasn't the promise. The promise was that God's going to anoint the lineage of Abraham. He's going to set aside a nation for his glory. And out of that nation, he's going to bring forth the Savior of the world. So the faithfulness of God is going to be fulfilled regardless of what the individual Jew does. God brought his promise to pass. In a backslidden nation, in in an Israel that had turned her back on God, in an Israel that was so far away from where God intended her to be that, that it wasn't even recognizable anymore, in that atmosphere, God brought the Savior. In that atmosphere, God robed himself in flesh and was born and laid in a manger at Bethlehem. It didn't matter about the unfaithfulness of Jews. It only mattered about the faithfulness of God. God brought it to pass regardless of what any man or woman did. Amen? So in making that claim, Paul quotes Psalm 51 and 4. And this psalm is David's prayer of repentance after he sinned with Bathsheba. If you read the 51st Psalm, it's when David's making repentance for his sin. And in verse 3, he confesses his sin. Then in verse 4, he acknowledges that his sin served to demonstrate just how blameless God is. In in the psalm, David admits his guilt as a way to demonstrate that the judgment of God on him was just. David's guilt, in a way, vindicates God's judgment. He, he, He wants to make it known in the psalm. God's not judging me unfaithfully or untrue. I've done wrong. I've sinned. And my failure, my sin, vindicates God's judgment. Now, Paul uses that psalm in the same sense here. It's as if God's judgment is on trial. It's as if the faithfulness of God has been questioned. And so Paul concludes, just as David concluded, that man's sin proves God's word to be right and vindicates God's judgments, far from destroying God's words, far from doing away with the faithfulness of God. Jewish unfaithfulness only serves to highlight the faithfulness of God. When the nation was far from God, God still used it to bring about his promise. When the nation's heart was backslidden from God, God still remembered the promise he made to Abraham. And he still brought to pass the promises he made to David that out of his lineage, from his seed, would come the Messiah. God never forgot his promise and, and if anything, the failings and failures of the Jewish people, if anything, the backsliding of the Jewish people serves to illustrate the faithfulness of God. That God was faithful even when they were unfaithful. So God carried out his plan. God preserved the nation of Israel in spite of their rejection of him. 
In spite of their rejection of the very oracles of God that they were given, God still preserved them. He still kept them intact. The descendants of Abraham were not as faithful as Abraham was. Abraham was the friend of God. His seed that followed after him wouldn't be able to claim that they were the friends of God. But God never abandoned the promise that he made to his friend, regardless of the direction that that nation went. In that context, all of the failures of the Jews served by contrast to make the faithfulness of God more apparent, not less. They served to highlight God's faithfulness, not diminish it. So the point that Paul makes is that man's unfaithfulness actually makes God's faithfulness more evident. Because the Jews were unfaithful, you you see... the glory of God is more evident in the fact that God still brought his promise to pass. Verse 5 then says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Then the parenthetical expression, I speak as a man. So the third objection rises from Paul's answer to the second objection. If man's sin brings out God's righteousness more clearly, if the unfaithfulness of Israel made the faithfulness of God more evident, then how can God punish man for his sin? That's the question. If man's sin actually brings greater glory to God, is God unfair then to condemn them that sin? The objection is so weak and blasphemous that Paul follows it with a little parenthetical expression. The King James says, I speak as a man. Uh, The NIV translates that as I'm using a human argument. The point that Paul's making is this is a very shallow statement. This is a very shallow argument. I'm almost embarrassed to bring it up. I want you to know I'm speaking like some foolish man would speak. I, I understand the logic here breaks down. This doesn't make sense, but I speak this as a man, as a foolish man. I, I'm, I just want to throw it out there. This isn't this. This I understand. This is shallow, but it is an objection that's going to come up. So here it is. And in verse six, he says, "God forbid." For then, how shall God judge the world? Again, he emphatically replies, "That that certainly not, absolutely not, or God forbid." And then he quickly disposes of the argument by pointing out that if that were the case, if verse 5 was the case, then God could not judge the world. The belief that God would judge the world in the last days is a cornerstone of Judaism. It's a prevalent theme throughout all of the Old Testament. And so Paul draws on that and says it would invalidate everything. If God is not just, at the core of all theology, At the core of all understanding of God, there lies the fundamental truth that the God who judges the world is just. He's righteous. His judgments are good all the time. Abraham summed up that view of God in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25 whenever God brought the message that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and And Abraham began to reason with God. He asked the question, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
It's just the basic understanding. It's the basic center of theology. God is just. He's righteous. Fundamental to faith in God is the belief that God will do right. Because of that, the objection in verse 5 is is worthless. It's baseless. That's why Paul says it's so shallow. Because it invalidates the very notion of who God is. What Paul is saying is just because... Just because God can make good come out of evil does not validate evil. Just because God can use a bad situation and make something good out of it doesn't give credence to that which was bad. It doesn't give value to it. Just because God can take sin and and use that which came out of sin to bring about his will doesn't validate sin. Sin in itself and left to itself will never lead to good results. Sin doesn't bring about anything good. For example, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. They did that out of sinful motives. They did it out of hatred, envy, and greed. But God took Joseph's time in Egypt and he turned it into a means of salvation for his entire family. That didn't mitigate the guilt of the sin of his brothers. That didn't do away the fact that when they acted, they acted out of sin. If they had not sinned, if they had not acted out of sin, God's plan would have still been fulfilled. That's a statement that we've made already. God had already started showing Joseph dreams and visions, and God was going to bless the nation through Joseph. God was going to preserve the seed of Abraham through Joseph, no matter what they did. But the brothers did sin, and they did, they did take their brother, and they did throw him in a pit, and they did sell him to the slave traders. He did end up in Egypt, and, and if God had not intervened, the consequences of their sin would have been disastrous for the whole family. But God brought good out of that evil situation. God, in spite of the brother's sin, not because of their sin, but in spite of their sin, they meant it for evil. But God made it to be good. That doesn't mean that God couldn't have brought good about by his own means or by his own plan. That doesn't mean that God needed them to sin to bring his will to pass. Just because God brought good out of the situation doesn't validate their sin. The good does not result from their evil. Rather, God made his plan work for good in spite of their evil. God made his plan work for good in spite of what they did. That's the fallacy of the argument of verse 5. By my sin, I bring God glory. No, that's not the case at all. Your sin never results in anything good. Your sin never brings glory to anybody or anything. Sin destroys. Sin tears down. Sin breaks everything that is good and holy and sacred. Sin tears your relationship with God apart. Sin drives you out of the presence of God. Nothing good ever comes from sin. Verse 7 says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie." unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? So in verse 7, Paul restates the objection, but this time he personalizes it. If my lie highlights God's truth 
And by lying, I bring greater glory to God. Then how can God condemn me for my sin? If I've done God a favor by sinning, then how can he punish me for my sin? The argument is that my failure to be what I should be, my failure to do what I should do, my failure to act in the way that I should act actually gives God's saving grace a greater chance to be on display in my life. Somehow by my sin and by my unfaithfulness to God, I display the grace of God in my life. If all I'm doing by my sin is giving a greater opportunity for God's truth to be known than the antagonist reasons, how can God judge me for my sin? Because my sin actually increases the glory of God in view of the good that results from my sin. People see the grace of God because of my sin. Then why should I be condemned? Again, it's, it's, a, it's an argument that's settled, seated in fallacy. It's flawed from the very beginning. But we said this over and over again in the last few weeks. We said it time and time after time after time that we display incredible ingenuity when we're trying to justify ourselves. We always think the best of what we do. We always think the best of our actions. The way of a man seemeth good to the man. And so we, we, we go to incredible lengths to justify ourselves. And that's, that's the line of thinking that's unfolding here. Somehow by my sin, somehow because I continue to live in sin, the whole world can see the grace of God in my life. And somehow that's a good thing that gives God glory. That's the line of thinking that leads to verse 8 and leads to the final objection that Paul mentions. Verse 8 says, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now, there's two things going on there. There's the statement, not rather, let us do evil that good may come. And then there's the statement about those that have accused Paul as if this was what he taught. And let their damnation be just. So the fourth objection is, why not do evil that good may come? Now, this objection is a logical extension of the previous one, and it holds that the ends justify the means. In other words, if the end result is good, if by my sin somehow God gets glory, then it doesn't matter how I gave God glory. It only matters that God got glory. The ends justify the means. It, it doesn't matter to the that the means were evil, it only matters that the end result was good. If my sin displays the glory of God's grace, then shouldn't my sin be excusable? For example, the false doctrine would, this, this way of thinking would allow one to lie as long as they were lying for a good cause. By my lie, I might bring about something good. It would allow one to violate biblical ethics with the thought in mind that because it was convenient to do so, then I, I could, I'd be excused because some good comes out of what I've done. If our sin demonstrates God's grace, Paul said, shouldn't we sin all the more? Shouldn't we continue that way? What's wrong with sin if it actually demonstrates God's grace? Now, the parentheses indicates that there were some of Paul's detractors who 
actually reported that Paul taught this very thing. They, they said this was the doctrine that Paul taught. As a matter of fact, there were some that believed that, that this was exactly what he believed. This was exactly what he taught. Now, that's an interesting statement. Perhaps some deliberately discredited Paul by twisting his teaching and saying this was what he taught. Or perhaps there were some who cited Paul's teachings as evidence to actually teach something along these lines. We, we don't know exactly what the case is, but we have to acknowledge that the temptation exists then as it does now to twist the grace of God into permission to continue to sin to twist the grace of God into some kind of divine permission to continue in a life of sin. Even today, many distort the doctrine of justification by faith, using it to teach that the grace of God automatically covers the believer even though he continues to live in sin. That somehow by his sin and by his continuing to live in sin, that God gets glory. That we can continue to live like we've always lived before we expressed our faith in God. And that somehow the grace of God gives us free license to do that because God's grace is freely given and we can't earn it. And so nothing we do can invalidate it. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the point that Paul's making. And it's a point he's going to deal with in depth. This particular argument, the fourth, the third and fourth objection, is going to deal with in depth in chapter 6. And we're going to get there eventually. But Paul rejects this doctrine that the ends justify the means, that the believer can continue in sin, that, that in order to bring greater glory to God, you need the grace of God evident in your life through sin. He even goes so far as to say that those who claim that this is his doctrine deserve the damnation that is coming to them. That's what he, very strong language at the end of verse 8. They deserve the condemnation that they're going to receive from God. Now, what I said at the beginning of this lesson before we started these eight verses is that Paul deals with these objections very briefly here. As a matter of fact, these last two he dismissed rather abruptly. We didn't really get a real in-depth treatment of them. That's because he's going to pick them back up and he's going to deal with them in depth later in this, this book. Right now he needs to continue the logical progression of his train of thought. He just needed to acknowledge these, put them out there, and then he's going to deal with them. He's already stated there's fallacy here. They're flawed, but we'll deal with them later. Now, in closing, and I'm wrapping up, we're going to be done. Hopefully the ice hasn't started yet and we're still good. Amen. But in, in closing, there are several errant doctrines that are refuted here in this, this passage of progression of thought through these first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. First, the doctrine of situational ethics. The idea that the standard of morality is not absolute. That the, 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 the Word of God, the ethical standard of the Word of God isn't forever settled, but it changes with the times, that it changes according to the circumstances. That's one of the doctrines that Paul is disproving here. There, there are forces at work in our world today. There are forces at work in, in the general Christianity at large today 
that are endeavoring to say that the church should embrace certain types of sin just because they become socially acceptable, regardless of what the Word of God says, regardless of what the, the morality of the Bible is, regardless of what Scripture says, because they've been embraced by our culture, because our world's already moved on, then it's time for the church to move on. That's the kind of fallacy that Paul's dealing with here. That's the kind of thinking that he is coming up against. They're saying essentially that we can judge the word of God, that we can decide which parts are applicable and which parts aren't. The idea that, well, you know, that's outdated and that doesn't work anymore and that doesn't apply anymore. It's, it's, a, it's the idea of situational morality and situational ethics, the idea that the situation and the circumstances and the season and the culture determines the interpretation of the Word of God, that we can judge God's Word, that we can, we can judge the oracles of God and that we can dismiss that that is no longer applicable to us. That's not what Paul teaches. That's not what the book of Romans teaches. Paul teaches just the opposite. The Word of God is what's going to judge us. Not that we're going to judge it, but it's going to judge us. That by every word that's written, a man is going to be judged, not the other way around. Amen? Another doctrine that is refuted here is the idea that salvation is based on mental faith alone without genuine repentance and without genuine obedience. And Paul has repeatedly linked faith and obedience as we saw here in this text. That Paul equated disobedience with disbelief there is no such thing my friend as faith alone faith never comes alone faith is always linked to obedience that's the unchanging standard of the word of God a third doctrine that's disproved here is the notion of once saved always saved Paul makes it plain that the Jew is not excused from disobedience because of his godly heritage. Just because he was a Jew, just because he was a descendant of Abraham, doesn't excuse him from his actions. The Jew and the Gentile alike, Paul says, will be judged by God on the basis of whether or not their faith resulted in obedience to the word of God. In the end, it still matters what you do, not just what you say you believe. Amen? Now, the thing that all of these doctrinal errors have in common is that they actually encourage people to stay in sin, to continue to live in sin. They pervert the grace of God to such an extent that one begins to believe, as incredulous as it may sound, the arguments that Paul made today, one begins to believe that by living in sin, they're actually demonstrating the grace of God. That their sin gives glory to God. What a, what a flawed concept. And you can read it in the book of Romans and you can think, man, those folks were so foolish. But that's a doctrine that is prevalent in our world today. A salvation that encourages people to continue just like they have been. To remain in the same condition that they were in before they expressed their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's point is clear. Genuine faith 
results in obedience. The grace of God results in a changed life. God did not save you so you could continue to live like you've always lived. God did not save you so you could remain like you were before you came to the cross of Calvary. God did not save you so you could continue in a life of sin. He saved you to set you apart, to make you his, to make you an ambassador of his glory and majesty.